In today's passage, Moses' sister and brother are mad at Moses because he had married a black woman. Numbers 12 is about the topic, the very timely topic of race and racism. And this is a sensitive topic, especially right now. Uh, But the one good thing for this message is that at least I know I have your attention. Let's pray together and ask God to speak to us through his word about this timely issue. Father God, as we come before you, Lord, I know that I am preaching to a variety of different people, both uh, that may be hearing this online or in person, different generations, different perspectives, uh, ethnicities, ways of looking at this issue, Lord God. And Lord, I ask that you would guide me as I speak, that I would only say things that are, I pray, helpful and true, Lord God. And Lord, I pray that you would open all of our hearts, Lord, to hear from your word, to help us to not overreact, uh, to lower uh, defenses, to be willing to receive from you any conviction that we need to have, Lord God. And Lord, I thank you so much for the forgiveness and reconciliation that comes in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. So again, we are in Numbers 12. We'll be going through the whole thing. We're going to read this, and I'll give you the first point, which is going to summarize. Uh, So the first point is that Miriam and Aaron slandered Moses because of his Cushite wife. So let's read through the whole chapter, and then we will start to unpack this. So (laughs) Numbers chapter 12, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and to Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam. And they both came forward. And he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them. And he departed. Verse 10. When the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. And Aaron turned towards Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said to Moses, O my Lord, do not punish us, because we have done foolishly and have sinned. And let her not be as one dead whose flesh is half eaten away 
when he comes out of his mother's womb. And Moses cried to the Lord, Oh God, please heal her, please. But the Lord said to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, should she not be shamed seven days? Let her be shut outside the camp seven days. And after that, she may be brought in again. So Miriam was shut outside the camp seven days, and the people did not set out on the march till Miriam was brought in again. After that, the people set out from Herazoth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. So Miriam and Aaron, so it's Moses' sister and, and his brother, they spoke out, they opposed Moses said because of the Cushite woman that he had married. Cush was also known sometimes as, as Nubia. This was a kingdom that was south of uh, ancient Egypt in what is now southern Egypt and northern Sudan. And she was, she was not a Hebrew. She was from a different ethnic background. And we're going to see here there's a lot of different sins that Miriam and Aaron had. And it should be a reminder to us, too, that different sins can piggyback on each other. So in addition to racism, Miriam and Aaron, they showed leadership envy. That's part of what's going on here. So they start with this issue of racism. They bring this up, that she's a, they're upset because she's a Cushite. And then they said in verse 2, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? Like, I thought we were about uh, just this being... Uh, the spirit given to, to all kinds of different people, and why should Moses be special? Shouldn't we have some of the leadership that, that he has as well? So first they brought up the issue of race, and then they brought up the issue of, of power and influence for themselves. So the issue of race was being used here by them for a, a power grab by Miriam and Aaron. And the Lord brings them all in, says, you're going to meet with me, and he speaks to them in this pillar of cloud and tells them that Moses has a unique prophetic and revelatory relationship with God. It's different even than all the other, other prophets, uh, that uh, he, the Lord doesn't speak to Moses um, in, just in dreams and in riddles, but, but clearly uh, face-to-face or literally mouth-to-mouth. And we see also that Moses was not sinfully jealous of his authority. This is showing that there, there still were legitimate authority structures here, that Moses was in this relationship of authority, uh, but it also we see that he was an, an example of humble authority. In verse 3, notice it says that he was, he was meek. Other translations might say that, that he, was, he was humble. He wasn't somebody that was after this for power or lording it over other people. Verse 3, now the man Moses was very meek more than all people around the face of the earth. Now, some have wondered and suggested that, well, verse 3 is indication that Moses really did not write uh, the book of Numbers. And there are more liberal scholars that think Moses didn't write um, the, the first five books of, of Scripture. Uh, but because they say, well, Moses, he wouldn't have written this about himself. But in reply to that, the one, the Holy Spirit could have still uh, compelled him to write this as an honest assessment. And also, it could be true that although Moses uh, wrote the first five books of the, the Old Testament, uh, I believe that, I believe Jesus believed that, 
Uh, we do recognize that there were some parts, uh, like the very end when Moses died, uh, that was probably written by uh, maybe Joshua and added to this before the, the works were in their final completed uh, form. So perhaps maybe Joshua could have added this before the text was finalized. But either way, the Holy Spirit is, is telling us here that Moses was very humble. He led with humility. And if you're in a position of leadership or a position of um, authority, or if you seek that, that it needs to be with humility, this is a good example that we see. And we also see that Moses was merciful. We see he interceded for Miriam, even though she was attacking him, even though she was challenging him, and asked God to, to forgive her, even though she had made herself at this time in, into an enemy of him. So we look at that, but one thing we want to draw out even more uh, from the beginning of this verse 1, this will be our second point, is just to make this really clear, this, this Cushite wife. Point number two, Moses had a black wife. And I don't know how many of us have let that sink in. Now, back in the book of Exodus, Moses, uh, when he uh, fled from Egypt, uh, he went into the wilderness and he married a Midianite woman um, named Zephorah. And this, in numbers, this is not the same woman because Zephorah was a, was a Midianite. Uh, this woman, we don't know her name, but she was, uh, she was from Cush. She was a, a Cushite. And so these are not the same. We don't know exactly, we don't know what happened to Sephora. Uh, we don't know if she died or, or, or what exactly happened. But this seems to be some sort of second marriage that Moses had. And his uh, brother and, and sister, they were not happy about it. His wife is a Cushite. Now, Cush, and where this is, uh, as we said, this is a kingdom that is south of ancient Egypt. In his book, From Every People and Nation, A Biblical Theology of Race, uh, J. Daniels Hayes writes this. He writes, Cush is a fairly common term in Egyptian literature. It also appears over 50 times in the Old Testament and is attested in Assyrian literature as well. It is used regularly to refer to the area south of Egypt above the cataracts of the Nile, where a black African civilization flourished for over 2,000 years. Thus, it is quite clear that Moses marries a black African woman. In another place, Hayes also writes, the term Cushite is repeated twice in Numbers 12.1, probably for stress. Throughout the ancient world, this term carried strong connotations of black ethnicity. Ancient readers of this text would visualize a black woman from the region south of Egypt. Jeremiah, for example, refers to the unique skin of the Cushites without any explanation of who they were or where they lived. Can a Cushite change his skin? Jeremiah 13, 23. This implies that Jeremiah's audience was familiar with the term Cushite and the uniqueness of their skin color. The ethnicity of Moses' new wife is stressed, and then opposition arises within his family. The most logical explanation is to associate these two as cause and effect. In other words, 
The way that Numbers 12 presents this is that they were upset because she was a Cushite, and this was because of her skin color, because of her ethnicity. This is what was the cause of their reaction. You say, well, where is a Cushite coming from? When they were slaves in Egypt, um, historically, we know that uh, Cush was next to Egypt, and there was a lot of crossover between these two nations. Um, even in Egyptian art and other records, uh, we see that there were uh, Cushite workers, there were Cushite uh, soldiers in Egypt. And we know from, from Exodus that when the, the Hebrews left, that there were some others from other nationalities that joined them in the Exodus as well. And so uh, it's easy to think that well, what happened is that Moses ended up marrying one of these Cushites that went along with them in the Exodus. And therefore the conclusion that we have to reach is that Moses really did, he had a black wife. And Miriam and Aaron did not like it. But how does God feel about it? When we look at the passage too, we can, we can see God's response to this. I mean, he judges uh, Miriam and he, he calls him out for, for going against Moses. But then also look at the, the judgment specifically that is given to Miriam. That God gives her leprosy, you know, this, this skin disease. And what's happening here is that God is judging Miriam for her racism by giving her a leprosy. In verse 10, it said, When the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous, like snow. And Aaron turned to Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. I think what we're seeing here, this would be what is called poetic justice. It's as if God was communicating to Miriam, so you have a problem with her skin? Well, I'm going to judge you with a, a real problem, an actual problem with, with your skin. And he strikes her with leprosy. In verse 10, notice it says that her skin was like snow. Now, this could refer actually to it being flaky like snow and being like dead skin that was, that, was, that was falling off. If this was also a reference to it being made white, because notice, Miriam, none of these people were Caucasians. None of these people were super light-skinned. Uh, but if it was a reference to be made white, it could be as if what God is also communicating through this judgment is, Miriam, so Moses' wife, you don't think that her, her skin is, is light enough? Well, I'll judge you, and we'll make your skin really white. So we see poetic justice going on here. God is making it clear that, that God had a problem with Miriam having a problem with Moses' wife's skin. You may also ask, why isn't Aaron judged like this? And some people say, we well, see, the Bible is anti-woman. It just, the woman is the only one that gets judged. Well, no, I think there's other reasons. I think we see at the, at the very beginning, Miriam is mentioned first. And so uh, it seems that she was probably the ringleader in this. She was the, the primary instigator meant being mentioned first. And also we see that Aaron repented very quickly, so that it could also be why he was, uh, that he was spared this judgment. But so far we see that it is clear that God is not okay with racism. And as we are going to keep talking about in this message, we're going to see that the Bible is opposed to racism from cover to cover. Now another implication that we can draw from this, which is important in society today, and this is something... Uh, also in, in our past. But point number three, the Bible is not opposed to interracial marriages. 
what does the Bible actually teach on interracial marriages? Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you, you might think to yourself, but aren't there some passages saying not to marry foreign women, telling the Hebrews not to do that? And some Christians have latched on to some of those passages uh, to say that interracial marriage is wrong. In fact, there was one conservative Christian university that I think to their, to their shame that they had outlawed interracial dating all the way into the year 2000 until they changed their policy and eventually apologized for that. But these Old Testament passages, there are Old Testament passages telling the Hebrews not to marry foreign women, but when we look at these, these are not about ethnicity. They are about what God they worship. The problem with marrying uh, these people in these other lands, it was not about their, their race or their color or anything like that. It was about what is the God, these false gods that they worship. So one example of one of these passages, Deuteronomy 7, 3 through 4. And it starts and says, You shall not intermarry with them. This is talking to the Hebrews before they go into Canaan, saying, You shall not marry these Canaanites. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. But then why? Verse 4 explains the reason for this. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. And unfortunately, we see that the Hebrews, they did not obey this instruction from God. For example, in Judges 3, 5 through 6, it talks about what happens later on when they did enter the land. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives and their own daughters they gave to their sons and they served their gods. That just what God said would happen ended up happening. And we see an ultimate example of this in, in the book of Kings. Kings 11 with, with Solomon. Remember Solomon, he's the son of David. He had asked God to give him wisdom and receive more wisdom th than any man alive. But we see from his choices, there is a big difference between having wisdom and using wisdom. 1 Kings 11, 1 through 6. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Nedamite, and Sodomite, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn your heart away after their gods. And Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. And it goes on and says that for when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That this it led him away from 
worshiping the true God and to worshiping these abominable false gods of the people around them. So we see that's the reason for this. And I have to give you another example. On, on the other, to prove it the other way, consider Ruth. Remember the book of Ruth? Ruth is not a Hebrew. She is from Moab. She is a Moabitess. And uh, she ends up marrying Boaz, who is this, this Hebrew. But before that, she had converted. She had come to, to worship and to follow the, the one true God. And therefore, the book of Ruth, this is presented not as a bad thing at all. This is a good and, and beautiful thing. And so Ruth is just another example of the fact that it is not about race. It was about, it was about religion. What God do they worship? And Ruth the Moabite even becomes a, a great ancestor of, of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. We see it's really the same thing in the New Testament, that there's no prohibition against ma marrying somebody of a different ethnicity, but Christians are told that if you love Jesus Christ, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you need to just marry someone else that loves and follows Jesus Christ and not an unbeliever. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, it says this, starting with verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. To be yoked is to be joined together like two oxen, you know, plowing a field. Don't be joined together with them. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? What a accord has Christ with Belial, or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? <clears throat> if you love Jesus more than anything else, if he really is the center of your life, if he really is your, your main thing and your focus, why in the world would you want to join yourself together for the rest of your life to, to someone that doesn't love Jesus, to someone that worships something else, maybe not a, the false god of the, the, the Ammonites, but something else that this person is living after instead of Jesus, marrying someone to be the, the father or mother of your children who doesn't love Jesus and isn't going to teach your kids to, to love Jesus. Why would you want to do that? So to anyone that's listening who, who is not married and is seeking that one day, that is the one thing above everything else, the non-negotiable thing that you have to look for. If you love Jesus, you need to look for someone else that loves Jesus above all things too. Hayes concludes, interracial marriage is strongly affirmed by scripture. Marrying unbelievers, on the other hand, is strongly prohibited. You know, there were actually laws in the American South against interracial marriage all the way up until June 12, 1967. That's only a little bit more than, 30, than 50 years ago. To me, it is, it is bizarre and sobering to me to think that this was ever something that was illegal in our country. That supposedly even... Uh, a country with, with so many Christians that this would be something illegal. And I think it's a reminder to me of how much racism we have had in our country and the effects that it still has on us today. Before I move on, Hayes waits one more thing, and this might be something that is convicting. He points this out. 
white families frequently rise up in arms when their children want to marry blacks, regardless of how strong the chosen person's Christian faith is. On the other hand, white Christian adults can marry other whites with little opposition, even if the faith of their selected mate is virtually non-existent. What would be harder for you to accept? Your son or daughter marrying someone of a, a different ethnic background, a different color, or then marrying someone that you can't even tell if they're a believer. It says something about our hearts. There's a lot of racism we have to deal with. And point number four, to make this really clear, is the Bible is opposed to racism from cover to cover. From beginning to end, the Bible is an anti-racist book when we look what it's really saying and what it communicates. Racism is a sin. We have to be really clear on this. It's rebellion against God, it's sin. Racism, it's animosity or bias towards people, other people because of their ethnicity being different from us. Now I'll say this, I, I don't think it is helpful to say that everyone is a racist or that all white people are racist. I think that can water down the idea and, and sometimes puts people on the defense. But I do believe that the seeds of racism are in all of our hearts. That we have at the very least the seeds of racism, of bias and prejudice that are, that are growing in our hearts. Because we are all sinners. And I think that's for all of us. Um, this issue of having these seeds of racism or bias, this is not just an American problem. This is not just in recent modern history. This is from the beginning. This is after Genesis 3, being in sin, we have uh, just every different tribe and, and people group. We have, have animosity towards those that are the outsiders, those that are different. It's not just in America. Uh, different people of different parts of this world today also have um, issues and biases towards, towards other people. It's something we all deal with. So I do believe that at least we all have the seeds of racism. And sometimes those seeds have germinated more than we like to admit. I believe that we have all been influenced by racism more than we realize or are willing to admit. But the Bible, which tells us what is true, is absolutely opposed to it. And I do literally mean cover to cover. So I'm going to give you some cover to cover examples. The beginning of this, we have the book of Genesis, chapter 1. Genesis 1.27 so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Paul talks about this later in Acts 17.26, saying, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. So there are many different nationalities and ethnicities, but at the core of it, we know there is is one human race. That when we go back, we are all descendants of, of Adam, created by God, and created in the image of God. And that gives people dignity and value and worth. And that's why God said to Noah in Genesis 9, 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. The reason why God gives Noah here 
the, the consequence of the death penalty for murder is because people are made in the image of God. And that gives every image bearer dignity and value and worth. That means that they should not be murdered. And this is a terrible affront to them and to God for that to happen. It is grounded in the fact that they're created in the image of God. Image bearers' lives matter. So we see this in the beginning of the Bible, and we also see it in the end. The last book of Scripture is the book of Revelation. Hear this, Revelation 5, 9 through 10. This, uh, this scene from heaven. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, talking about Jesus, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Notice what this is saying here. People of every tribe and language and people and nation, the blood of Jesus Christ was shed for them. The blood of Jesus was shed to pay for the sins of people of all different ethnicities, all different nationalities. And together they're all made into uh, a kingdom and priests to our God. Revelation 7, 9 through 10, we get another glimpse of this worship in heaven. Verse 9, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples, peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So we see, again, people from every nationality, every ethnicity, every background, together worshiping Jesus Christ in his glory. Christian, you will spend eternity worshiping God with people of every ethnicity. If you are a racist, you will not like heaven. That means either you don't go there, or you need to repent and to change. Think of this too. Sometimes people use the phrase uh, to be colorblind. It's good to be colorblind. Ask, is, is God colorblind? Now I know people mean it in different ways, but it's not as if God doesn't, doesn't see color. It's not that way. God sees all the colors, and they are beautiful to him. All colors are beautiful and meant to be together in worship forever to the glory of God. So we see at the beginning, we see it at the end. We also see it in the middle, especially in the redemption of Jesus Christ and the unity that he brings. On your own, you could read Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, where it talks about through the, through the death of Christ in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility between different ethnicities is, is broken down. But let me read to you Galatians 3, 26 to 28. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. 
For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So first of all, it's saying that if you have trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, that's what it means through faith, you've stopped trusting in something else for your salvation, you're, you've turned to him, you're trusting in uh, the Lord God, Jesus Christ, is the one that died on the cross and rose again for your, for your salvation, that you are now one in Christ. You have been put into this, this, this circle of being in Christ, into the body of Christ, into the church. And that through this, we are all sons, all together. And then it says, 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, ethnicity is still a part of our identity. Saying that there's neither Jew nor Greek or male or female, these things are not actually erased. These things are not absolutely taken away. But these are not our primary identity. When people make race their, their primary identity, uh, which is what happens today in identity politics, when people make race their primary identity, that divides. And there are many people today that I think actually want that division. But making Christ your primary identity unites. That these other things about us, they still matter, but they're not the most important thing. They're not primary. The primary thing is being one in Christ. So in Christ, there is diversity without division. We say all this, we have to come to the last final point. And we have to be really clear about this, especially in this moment. So my last point here is, the life of every black person matters immensely because we are all created in the image of God. You know, this passage is about Moses's, uh, his black wife and their opposition to that. I guess I could have called this message, Black Wives Matter. But seriously though, what about black lives matter? And I know this is a really controversial, touchy thing in our, in our society and world today. Should you say that? You know, why is, why is there a debate? And again, I'm aware that I'm talking to, to different people and different perspectives and generations and political stances and ethnicities and different hurts that people have had. So just as we, we think about this, reminded that in the past weeks, there has been outrage. That's why this is at the forefront right now again, because of the horrific death of George Floyd under the knee of a bad cop. And the actions of this arresting officer have been, thankfully, universally uh, condemned as reprehensible. And the officer ought to stand trial for murder. We ask that justice would be done. And many people, we have to realize they are simply using the phrase Black Lives Matter as a call for justice for black people and for black people to be treated with, with dignity and respect. And so I wouldn't have a problem saying black lives matter if that was all that people meant. And of course, it is absolutely true that the lives of all black people matter. I mean, we need to be absolutely clear on that. The lives of black people matter immensely with transcendent value because they are created in the image of God. 
And also, saying black lives matter doesn't necessarily have to mean that you think that other lives don't matter. We don't have to have a fight back and forth on that. The complication is that there's a lot of baggage attached to the specific phrase, black lives matter, and to many people it means other political statements as well. Exhibit A. On the streets of Washington, D.C., a few weeks ago, the, the city painted in big yellow letters the words Black Lives Matter on the street. And then protesters added to that, also in um, big yellow letters, equals defund the police. You see how this makes a problem? Because uh, if Black Lives Matter equals, if it really equals defund the police, then if you think that defunding the police is a very bad idea, and I really think that is a terrible idea, then it puts you in this position of, well, if I say this, then according to them, I also mean this. But then you're in a tough spot because you either, you don't say black lives matter and then you're a racist, or you do say it and they say, well, okay, well, that means you also want to defund the police. And they put you in this, this weird false choice of having to affirm something that would be terrible for communities and especially for black communities. And demonizing police is, is just making things more tense for everyone on both sides. Exhibit two, exhibit B, there is an organization known as Black Lives Matter. And when people donate, that's a lot of times that's where the donations are going. Blacklivesmatter.com, an organization started in 2013. And if you look on their, their website, right there in their um, what we believe section, it lists many different things. But it is not just about uh, promoting uh, safety and equality for black people. There's all kinds of other things attached to it. It says, we are self-reflexive and do the work required to dismantle cisgender privilege. That's the privilege of people that aren't transgender. It talks about uh, dismantling uh, the patriarchal practices uh, so that uh, the men are not uh, providing leadership for their homes. But then it says, we disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure. So they're going against this idea that there ought to be this, this core unit of a, um, a, a husband and wife, mom and dad with their children as the core of society and saying that part of their agenda is, is to break this up and instead to be more of a, a community, a social effort. And it gives other things. We foster a queer affirming network. So we see that for them, there's a lot of things packed into this from, from sexual revolution to, to socialism. And you know, if there's one thing that the black community does not need, it's to have families further weakened. And unfortunately, many things that white America has done have contributed to that. Now yes, people still make their own choices, but there are many things that society has done that have not helped and have hurt their situation uh, even more than it has hurt other families. The sexual revolution and the destruction of the American family have taken a bigger toll on many black communities more than anywhere else. And the rate of fatherlessness, in fatherless homes is, is staggering. You know, one thing that absolutely makes a difference in someone's life growing up 
is having a father at home lovingly committed to his wife and to his children. But the actual statistics tell us that black children are almost three times more likely than white children to grow up living absent to their biological fathers. People want to talk about systemic injustice, and there are things to think about. But oftentimes, they don't want to think about that type of example. And if we really believe that black lives matter, that all black lives matter, then we need to be concerned about the extermination of black babies through abortion. You know, black Americans make up 13% of the population, but they account for over 30% of all abortions. So in America, if you are a, a black baby, you have way higher chance of not even making it out of the womb than a white baby. In Michigan, blacks are 13.8% of the population, but in Michigan, make up 50% of all abortions. This is targeted genocide against black people. You know, P Planned Parenthood's founder, Margaret Singer, stated that she wanted to keep the wrong kind of people from reproducing. If we care about systemic injustice, that's something that we ought to care about as well. The organization Black Lives Matter, I think is an unjust organization that promotes real systemic injustice and tries to, to smuggle in many other agenda items under this phrase. But again, not everyone who says that means the whole thing, but it's something to be aware of. And we need to remind ourselves that, but the simple sentence, black lives matter, that is true. It is literally true because black people are created in the image of God. And don't lose that truth because of the radicals. And we have to recognize that there have been horrendous things done to black people throughout history. Slavery, segregation, prejudice, lynchings, bad laws, policies that have hurt black people and still have repercussions. And there have been many even well-intended policies that have had unintended consequences that have made things worse. We need to move, we need to care enough to move beyond just hashtags and posturing online to think through specific actions and policies that would genuinely help. We need to promote ways to help that don't destroy families or create dependency or take away responsibility and the dignity that comes with that. You know, as Christians, we have reasons to be against racism that the world does not have. We know that each person is created in the image of God with transcendent worth. We know the love of Christ for all peoples. We know the future and the glory for all ethnicities worshiping God together. And we know that we have an actual ground to say that racism is objectively wrong because we know that there is a creator God that defines right and wrong, real right and wrong, by his character. And we know a God who redeems who changes hearts and who brings forgiveness and reconciliation. 
I'll say this. Christianity is the best cure for racism. If you want to fight racism, to really fight it, be a Christian. Follow Jesus and consistently live that out. Let God search your heart for things that we need to change and live for him. Today is Father's Day. And as Christians, we are all brothers and sisters to people of many different colors. Brothers and sisters together. And we all have the same Father. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that in Christ we are one. That in Christ that we have diversity without division. That knowing you and loving you and being loved by you is the most important thing about us, Lord. Lord, we admit that we are all sinners and we have the seeds of racism and all kinds of sins in our hearts. Lord, search us. Reveal to us any things that we need to repent, we need to change of. Use us for, for good and for your glory. And may each of us be agents of real reconciliation and healing and forgiveness. We thank you that you are the creator of all of our brothers and sisters, no matter their ethnicity or color. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.